0: I want to warn you that this is liable to be a train wreck, uh, as the whole message may be as well. Um, I do have to tell you that one of the things that I'm greatly going to miss, there's lots of things, but are Steve's stupid jokes, um, and, um, and and being teased. Um, I've tried to be eHarmony for 11 years, it just hasn't worked, and I haven't been very uh, effective at it either, but um, you got everything, Dustin? You got it. All right. All right. So let me say a few thank yous here as you're turning. I, I do want to say thank you to Steve. Um, for uh, 12 years ago, he and I sat down at Cracker Barrel on I-65 and 61st Avenue, and uh, he talked to me about a part-time job. That part-time job turned into an interim job, which turned into a full-time job, which turned into over a decade of full-time pastoral ministry, and. Uh, the moral of this story is if Steve talks to you about a part-time job, be willing to give your entire life uh, to him um, at that moment. Um, and there certainly have been ups and downs for sure, but uh, many more ups than downs, and uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, I also need to say thanks to Steve for um, impacting more um me more than he will ever know, and um, saying that much of what I take with me uh, in going to Harmony is a result of his influence on my life and ministry. I want to say thank you to the elders and deacons, um, past and present, probably would total somewhere around 50 to 60 men. It's been a tremendous privilege of serving with uh, you, um, mostly in Tuesday night meetings. <laughs> ...for hours and hours and hours in one of the rooms here in the church. And um, uh, I love meetings. Um, people know that about me. Um, especially meetings where we can actually get things done and get things accomplished. And I can look across the room and the men... I just want to tell you here, Bethel, you have very, very godly, wonderful leaders, men, who lead this church. And I want to encourage you to be thankful for them, to uphold them in prayer... ...and to recognize, really, uh, what you have here at the church. Because many churches do not have the leadership that Bethel And it makes all the difference in the world. I want to say thank you to the staff. I talked to them on Friday. And you simply also, by the way, you have the best staff in the world. Uh, they're they're just wonderful. And uh, really, uh, we've been able to accomplish a lot of things uh, during this, our time here. Um, but really, we have to give the credit, one, obviously, to God. But two, none of the things that we've been able to do would have been possible without the other staff who is here ministering side by side and serving you and serving us at the same time. And the last thing I want to say here uh, in, to the church is uh, thank you to the entire church body. You know, I don't have time. Uh, we really could take the whole service, really the whole day, if I was to go around and to mention every single person who has meant something special to us during our time here. Hundred, literally, I, I say hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And uh, you all have been a tremendous, see, some of you have been a pain in my rear end, okay? I'm going to uh, admit that, okay? Uh, but I say that out of love, okay? I say that out of love. But most of you, most of you um, have been a tremendous. This blessing and a joy, even in difficult things. And it's been a great privilege to be um, your pastor and to serve alongside of you here over the last. Last 11 years, and thank you also for your support and care through all the car accidents and car accidents and the emergency rooms. I actually am a little concerned for St. Anthony's that they may go out of business now that we are uh, that we are moving away. But uh, you think that that's funny, but it's not really. We've had uh, many children, many hospital visits, and many weekends in the emergency room um, here during our time here. Last of all, I want to say is thank you to Jesus Christ because in reality, it is only because of Him that uh, we have the privilege to serve here in His church and um, you know moving on is not easy Uh, it's hard but um, you know when the general and the king tells you to go you go and that's what we're doing so anyways enough about uh, me okay I've had enough of that in fact I've had enough of it this weekend and all that let's just talk about him Okay, because I would much rather do that. And so in order to do that, I want to say one more thank you. Thank you to Steve for the privilege of preaching this weekend and the privilege of actually stepping out of the I Met Jesus series and I want to share something that the Lord has laid on my heart. Now, I am not going to do what my good friend Don Helton did several years ago and tell you the 24 things that I have learned during my time at Bethel, okay? I'm only going to share a couple of things, but I'm going to do so here uh, from the book of Jonah because it's been interesting to me over the last five months as we have been considering this transition about how the Lord has taken me to this book and I spent a lot of time studying and praying and thinking about what God is trying to speak to us uh, about in regards to this book and how it applies actually to my time at Bethel. And so this is a wonderful, wonderful book. It's packed with so much great truth and I'm just going to kind of cover the basics here this morning. But I do want us to be aware of a danger as we come to the book of Jonah and that is the danger of familiarity. You realize that probably there is no one in this room today who is not familiar with the story of Jonah and the fish or the whale, right? We're all familiar with this story. And here's the problem. The problem is, as Ray Steadman says, that Jonah is probably the most known yet least understood book in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is that Jonah is not, listen to me, Jonah is not about Jonah and a fish, okay? In fact, the fish plays a very, very small role in the story In reality, the story of Jonah is about God and Jonah. It's about sin and salvation. It's about mercy and grace. And ultimately, Jonah is a story that very, very powerfully illustrates the gospel. So here's what I want to encourage you to do as we go throughout this book this morning. I want to encourage you to identify with one of the major characters, okay? There's only three, so this is pretty easy. And by the way, the fish is not one of the major characters, okay? All right? Three characters. There's God. And you can't identify with God, so don't try to identify with Him this morning, okay? There's basically Jonah and there's the Ninevites. Jonah and the Ninevites. And as you look at this book, what God wants you to see this morning is He either wants to see yourself as Jonah or He wants to see yourself as one of the Ninevites. So, try as we go throughout the morning, try to look at this story through the eyes of Jonah or one of the Ninevites. And let's begin here by reading verses one through three of chapter one. We're not gonna read the whole story. There's 48 verses. I'm basically gonna give Give you an overview of each chapter, and then I'm going to bring uh, to you two application points, two things, two major themes, really, that we see here in Jonah. Look at verses one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let me give you a little background here as we begin. Second Kings 14.25 tells us that Jonah was from the town of Gath Hepher, okay? We've got a map up here that can help us uh, kind of picture what's going on. Gath Hefer is in the northern part of Israel. Okay, it's part of the Northern Kingdom, and Jonah would have prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam the second. Now here are a couple things that are significant about the time and about Jonah and about the kingdom. Jonah actually had the rare privilege of being one of the prophets who was able to prophesy good things for the nation of Israel. Most of the prophets were doom and gloom. God's judgment is coming. You better repent. Jonah actually had the privilege of prophesying to the people of Israel that God's blessing was on the way and then actually seeing that blessing come to fruition. So at this time, Jonah was actually seeing that Israel's ancient boundaries were being extended, and this was a time of blessing in Israel. It was also a time where the major power in the world of that day was Assyria. Let me tell you a little bit about the Assyrians. If you were to go back and study history, you would probably find that there were no more wicked, evil, and cruel people in all of recorded history than the Assyrians. They were basically a picture of the sinful nature gone wild. They were into witchcraft. They were into idolatry. They were into gratuitous sexual immorality, and they are known in history for perhaps being the most wicked people ever. Not only were they wicked, but they were incredibly cruel. And you can read how their kings actually would talk and they would brag about how brutal and violent they were. Stories like they would take the captives from battle and they would bring them home and then they would literally skin the people alive and they would take the skins and they would put the skins on the city walls as a memento to all of the other surrounding nations and a warning as to not rebel against the Assyrians. And so what we have here is we have Jonah at the very height of his popularity. Jonah was, he was a rock star, okay? He was a rock star. He was at the height of his celebrity. Everything is going good for him. God comes and says, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to these wicked, evil people, and I want you to take my message to them. And so what does Jonah do? Well, Jonah immediately arises when God tells him to go, and he goes. But where does he go? He goes in the exact opposite direction of where God tells him to go. You can see where Tarshish is up there on the map. We believe it's in southern Spain, okay? The direct opposite uh, way from Nineveh. And the significance about this, by the way, is that Tarshish was probably the farthest place away in the known world of that day. So Jonah was trying to get as far away possible as he can. We have the lilyards here from Vanuatu, okay? I've been to Vanuatu. It took me 36 hours and four plane flights to get there, okay? That's about as far, and you, you don't even know where it is. Just admit, you don't know where Vanuatu is, okay? All right? And that's basically what Jonah is doing. He's getting as far away as he possibly can. I want to pause here for a second. I want to ask you why. Why did Jonah run from God? Why did Jonah run from his mission? Your initial thought is probably that he's running because he's scared to death that he is going to be killed and that God has sent him on a suicide mission and he wants no part of it. If that's your thought, it's a good thought, but you're wrong. That's not why Jonah ran. And we're going to see in a little bit, I'm not going to tell you right now, but we'll see a little bit when we get to chapter 4, why exactly he did run, and it's very important to the story. Let's go on now to chapter 2, okay? Chapter 2. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, okay? As most of chapter 2 recounts Jonah's prayer. Actually, you know what? I skipped part of the story, okay? I'm getting out of myself here. Let's go back. Back to chapter 1, sorry. Jonah boards the ship. Okay, He goes down to Joppa, which is a port city. It's a port city on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. He gets on the ship. He starts sailing for Tarshish when all of a sudden the Lord sends a massive storm. And we know it's a massive storm because these experienced mariners begin to freak out. They begin to throw everything overboard to lighten the ship. They're rowing as hard as they can to get back to sea. Meanwhile, what's Jonah doing? He's sleeping, right? Jonah's sleeping and he's sleeping like a baby. Apparently not much of a conscience, okay? So there's this massive storm and the captain comes down then wakes Jonah up and says, what in the world are you doing? And when it's, uh, when they figure out that Jonah is the one who has caused the storm, they take Jonah, they throw him overboard. And what's interesting is, is that the moment that Jonah hits the water, the storm stops. It stops, and the mariners, the sailors are all excited and they're sacrificing and they're praising God. Meanwhile, apparently Jonah didn't take swimming lessons at the Y growing up because he, even though the uh, storm and the waves are calm, he is sinking to the bottom of the ocean and drowning. And if you go on to chapter two, we see that as he is drowning, he cries out to God. He realizes what a mess he is in. And he cries out to God to save him and God sends a giant fish, a great fish to swallow him and to save him. You know, it's interesting here because I think that most people uh, in the story think that uh, God saved Jonah from the fish. When in reality, God used the fish to save Jonah from himself. Think about that for a little bit. We'll come back and talk about that more in a moment as well. And so when we get to chapter 2, we actually see, recorded there, Jonah's prayer during the time in the fish. And it's a great prayer. I'd encourage you to read it later. But it kind of sums up in verse 9 when Jonah says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Perhaps the greatest phrase in all of Scripture. And then look at verse 10. It says this, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, that's a great word for Sunday morning, isn't it? Sunday morning church, vomit. Okay? Well, at least he doesn't use uh, gross words like hurl or puke or barf or spew or some other disgusting word, right? They laughed more at that last night. Do they do that sometimes to you too? It happens often for service. Okay. I was just trying to see if you are awake. Anyways, that's chapter 2. Okay, and so Jonah comes out of the fish. He probably would have been quite a sight, okay? Bleached skin. He would have stunk to high heaven. And when we come to chapter 3, we see that God comes back to Jonah and he recommissions him. He says, here you go. I'm going to give you another chance. I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against that great city. And so this time Jonah has learned his lesson or at least part ways. And he says, okay, I will go. And he sets out on the 500 mile journey to Nineveh. And chapter three tells us that Jonah gets to Nineveh. He goes a day into the city. The city was three days. Would have taken three days to walk through Nineveh. Jonah only goes a day in, and he preaches this message. Okay, preaches this message. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, literally, this is what Jonah does. He walks into the city. He says this. He turns around and he walks out. Now, I want you to help me here. How many words is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight words, and actually in Hebrew, it's only five words. Jonah preaches a five-word message. His heart really isn't into this, okay? He's going to do the bare minimum that he can, but he walks into the city, he preaches a five-word sermon, and heads out to see what God is going to do. Meanwhile, and this is really, really, really good. Look at what happens in Nineveh. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast to put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, do you get what's going on here? Okay, this is a very, very significant event in history. You are seeing here in Jonah chapter 3, the greatest revival in the history of the world from a five-word sermon. A five-word sermon. Jonah preaches and the entire nation, at least 120,000 people, the greatest of them to the least, repent and cry out to God. And this was so serious that they get into sackcloth and ashes and they fast. And not only that, but they start making their livestock fast and throw sackcloth on them as well. I have to tell you, if you were to go home today and make your uh, household pets, okay, fast and go in sackcloth and start repenting, it would be a real serious revival here at Bethel, okay? We know when you get the household pets involved, especially if there's any cats, that uh, you really have a revival going on. Now, I want you to put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a second. How would you be feeling right now? How would you be feeling right now? You preach the five... Word, sermon, and everyone who hears the message repents and turns around. You'd have to think that you would be pretty excited, right? I have to tell you that as a pastor and preaching today, if like one of you thinks that this message is even halfway decent, I'm going to probably be feel pretty encouraged. Jonah gets a hundred percent. This would be like like literally taking Crown Point, Maryville, Sherrillville, Dyer, and Hobart, and we we went out and we preached a five word sermon at Route 30 and I 65, and the entire all of those cities repented and came to Jesus Christ. We'd be pretty excited about that, wouldn't we? What about Jonah? Is he excited? Okay, is he excited about this? Well, let's turn to chapter 4 and see because we actually see the exact opposite. Look at 4 verse 1 and I'm going to read actually this entire chapter because it's so important to the story. Okay, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly greatly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Aha! Now we've got it, right? Now we figured it out. Why did Jonah run? Jonah didn't run because he was afraid of what the Ninevites were going to do to him. Jonah ran because he was afraid of what God would do to the Ninevites. Jonah is actually quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting Deuteronomy here. He's saying, I know what kind of God you are. I know how gracious and how merciful you are. And if I go and preach to these people, you're actually going to have mercy and grace on them and you're going to forgive them. They're going to repent. There's going to be no disaster and I hate these people. I cannot stand them and I cannot stand to see them repent that's why Jonah ran look at uh, verse four it goes on and says this and the Lord said do you do well to be angry oh let me read verse three therefore now O Lord please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live and the Lord said do you do well to be angry so Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become the city Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. You see how he was exceedingly angry that the Ninevites had been spared? He's exceedingly glad now for this plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. When the sun rose... And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Now that's quite a story, isn't it? Chapter 4 is very, very interesting, although you might think that it's kind of anticlimactic there at the end. God just leaves us hanging with a question, and we don't actually see what the end of the story is. But I have to tell you that this is a question that Jonah needs to answer, and I believe that it's a question that we need to answer as well. And this morning I just want to very simply try to bring together here two main themes, what we will call maybe two great big picture truths that we see here in the book of Jonah. You might see as we go through this that there is a theme of greatness in Jonah. There's a great city, there's a great fish, there's a great storm, there's a great repentance. But we also see a great idol. And that is the great idol of self. Let's think about Jonah here for a second. Okay, And I really believe that for most of us here today, God wants us to look at this book and wants us to look at Jonah and he wants us to see ourselves. He wants us to see ourselves. So let's kind of diagnose Jonah. What's going on? What's Jonah's issue? This guy's got some issues, don't you think? Okay. He's got some real big issues. This is a guy who actually is sticking his finger in God's face and saying, I know better than you do. Okay. I am more righteous than you are, God. Why in the world are you doing the things that you are doing? And I am so angry with you that I would rather have you kill me than actually to live. Now, I have to tell you, by the way, that if I was God, uh, Jonah would have been dead, okay? At the very moment, right? You know, I I just would have killed him, right? Who who is this guy to point his finger at me? Thankfully, God is more patient than I am and more kind because he had more for Jonah to learn and more for us to learn as well. And here's the issue with Jonah. Jonah's got an idol and his idol is himself. His idol is himself. And we see this displayed in two ways. First of all, we notice that Jonah is very, very self-righteous, He is very, very self-righteous. He very simply thought that he was better than the people of Nineveh. He thought that his race, there's racism going on here, his Bible knowledge, okay, his understanding of God, and even his position as a prophet made him better. You know, he probably wouldn't have claimed that he was perfect, but he certainly thought that he was much better than the pagan, ignorant, wicked, evil Ninevites. And so to Jonah, this meant that he deserved God's favor, and they did not... And when God didn't act the way that Jonah thought that he should act, Jonah couldn't handle it and he went crazy. You know how this works, right? We think that God should act this way. We think that God should do this. And when God doesn't do the things that we think that he should do, what do we end up doing? We end up getting mad and we end up getting angry and we end up getting bitter. And we say, I don't get this. And that's what's going on here with Jonah. I want to ask this question though. How did Jonah get to this point? How do you get to the point where you stick your finger in God's face and say, God, you are wrong. You are wrong. And I'm going to tell you about it. How does he get to this point? Well, I believe it began with Jonah using the wrong standard to evaluate himself. Jonah was using the wrong standard to evaluate himself. You see, Jonah compared himself not to God's standard, but, but he compared himself to the Ninevites. And of course, when you compare yourself to the Ninevites, the wickedest people that ever lived, you look pretty good, right? And isn't that how it works for us? We can always find people that are more wicked and more evil and more wrong than we are. It's easy, right? There's always people who are more wicked than us. And that's what Jonah is doing here. The problem for Jonah and the problem for you and me is that God uses a different standard. And what is God's standard? God's standard is perfection, And for all of us, that's a big problem because we fall way short of perfection. In fact, Isaiah 64 tells us this. It says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now we're not going to go into what a polluted garment is here, but just get this point. What it means is that even when we are at our best, you need to get this, everybody needs to hear this, that even when you are at your very, very best, you're having the greatest day ever, you still fall way, way short of God's standards, that even your best efforts, even when you are at your very, very best, your best efforts are still tainted by sin and they fall way short of perfection. And so in God's economy, Jonah and you and me need mercy just as much as the Ninevites do. Do you get that? That we are just as much in need of mercy as the Ninevites are. And when Jonah finds this out, he can't stand it. Okay? He can't stand it. It's a blow to everything that he thought and believed. Now, I want to try and help tie this in here and help you see how this actually plays out. And I want to apply it to myself. Okay, And how this actually comes in today. Maybe this will make sense to you. Over my time here at Bethel, and especially in recent years, the Lord has revealed to me that at the very root of who I am, the major, maybe uh, one of the major or the major sin in my life is the sin of self-righteousness. It's the sin of self-righteousness. And let me tell you where this comes from. It actually comes from most of the blessings that God has given me uh, in my life. And so let me tell you a little bit about my resume here, okay? I was born into a Christian family with godly Christian parents. I came to know the Lord when I was six years old. I was baptized shortly thereafter. I can count on my uh, two hands the number of Sundays that I have not been in church in my entire life, even when I was sick, Okay? I've been a pastor at a large church with lots of responsibility. I've seen the Lord do tremendous things here at Bethel. The problem is, is that you know what I'm responsible for in all of that? How much of it? Absolutely nothing. But the problem is, is that when I see those things and experience those things, I have the tendency to put myself up on a pedestal and to think that I am better than other people. In fact, better than most of you uh, most of the time. Here's the problem with that, however, is that when I act out of self-righteousness, I am actually in more danger and in more trouble and in more sin than all all of the other people who I see sinning around me. And all you have to do is you have to look at the Gospels and you have to look at how Jesus interacted with different people and see how he uh, responded to them. If you go to the Gospels, you're going to see this in John Who was Jesus the most tender and the most compassionate uh, to? It was the people who we would consider sinners, right? And who did Jesus have the harshest, hardest uh, words for? It was the Pharisees, the self-righteous people. Because the problem with self-righteous people is, is they don't think that they need Jesus. They think that they got there by themselves, I don't know if you ever seen the picture with the turtle that, that's on the fence post, okay? And the subtitle says, you know that he didn't get here by himself, okay? I didn't get here by myself, but when I think that I do, I'm in big trouble. And here's what I have found out about self-righteousness and when I act out of self-righteousness. When I act out of self-righteousness, I lose the ability to correctly see my own sin and deal with it. So I end up with a problem with myself, And when I act out of self-righteousness, I lose the ability to show mercy when others don't measure up to my standards. So I have a problem with other people. And in the end, it affects my relationship with God because when he doesn't treat me or others as I think he should, I start questioning his goodness and his wisdom much as Jonah did. And you need to listen to this. When we act out of self-righteousness, every relationship that we have gets messed up. Every one of them gets messed up. And so what's the answer to self-righteousness? What's the answer to self-righteousness? Well, we'll get to that in a minute because Jonah had another problem that many of us have and that is self-centeredness. Not only was he incredibly self-righteous, but it's also clear that Jonah was much more concerned with his comfort than he was with God's mission. He was much more concerned with himself than with the need of others. And we see this in verses nine through 11. I want you to look at it with me again, okay? But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see, here's what's going on. Somehow Jonah had missed the fact that God's mission was bigger than Jonah and the nation of Israel. Somewhere along the way, Jonah had lost sight of the fact that God desired to be worshipped by all the peoples of the earth. And somewhere, Jonah had forgotten that God chose Israel to be a light to the other nations. And ultimately, Jonah forgot that God cares more about people than he does about plants. And I realize that there are none of you here this morning who care more about plants than you do about people. However, you do have things that you care more about than people, okay? And there's, there, there, they are there. I don't know what it is for you, but just fill in the blank, okay? God cares more about people than he does about blank. What's the blank for you? Is it sports? Is it money? Is it home? Is it family? Is it your job? Is it your reputation? Put that blank in there. God cares more about people than he does about your blank. He cares more about people than he cares about our comfort and the things that we love and cling onto. So what's the answer, okay? These are serious issues, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. They're issues that Jonah struggled with, they're issues that we struggle with. What's the answer? Well, the answer is in the second grade of truth, and this is really what Jonah is all about, and that is the great mercy of God, the great mercy of God. Jonah is all about God's mercy. And we see God's mercy to two different types of people. We see God's mercy to the Ninevites. And we could equate the Ninevites with perhaps unbelievers, okay? We see God's mercy towards unbelievers. Listen, these are the most wicked people that have ever inhabited the world. And what do we see? We see that God's mercy could even reach the most wicked people of all time, which is great news for you and me, isn't it? Isn't it great news for you and me that if God's mercy can reach the greatest, most wicked people of all time, that maybe God's mercy can reach you and me. And I have to tell you that this is a truth that so many people in our world and even in this church need to hear because there are so many people that think that they are beyond the mercy and grace and love of God. They think that they are far too gone. They think that they have run too far from Him. They think that their sin is too great, that a relationship is too messed up, that God wants nothing to do with them. And if that is you here this morning, Jonah says to you that though your sin is great, God's mercy is greater still. You know what, and this, this is actually a truth that really fills me with joy uh, here because I can look out uh, at the, uh, the congregation this morning and if we had time I could go around from person to person and I could have you share about how at one time you were far from God, deep in sin, and yet today you are a living, wonderful testimony of how Jesus Christ has changed your life, showed you mercy, and made you into a new person. On Thursday, the pastors took me out for a final lunch, and we were just kind of reminiscing, and I was sharing about some of the great stories that I had seen over my time here, and I was kind of going through this person and this person. Most of them were men, and even one of these guys, I said, you know, I really said, I said, two years ago, if I had seen this guy, I would have punched him in the face, okay, in other words, this is a guy who was uh, just being a complete, complete idiot uh, with his wife and with his child and with his entire life. He was throwing his faith completely away. And yet today, in the last two years, you wouldn't even recognize this guy now. He is a wonderful, beautiful testimony. He's a godly husband. He's a godly father. He's, he's, he's serving uh, here in his church and God is going to do wonderful, tremendous things uh, through his life. And I could go around the congregation today and share story after story after story. And I just want to tell you, if you're here today and you're far from God, you are not too far. You are not too far. All that you have to do is what the Ninevites did, and that is believe God, call on Him to save you, and He will. He will. But you know what? There's more mercy in this story. And in reality, the person who needs the most mercy is the person who thinks that he needs it the least. Who gets the most mercy in this story? Is it the Ninevites? Actually it's not the Ninevites, it's Jonah himself. It's so interesting that, that as you go throughout the book, God uses just all kinds of different means to try to get Jonah to see his mercy and then to show that mercy to others. So God in chapter 1 uses a storm. And then God uses a great fish. And then God uses in chapter 4 a plant. And then God uses a, a worm. All of these things. And then he even uses the sun to try and get Jonah's attention. And if you read this and look at this, you might, you might be saying, you know, what is God trying to do here with Jonah? Is God just kind of toying with him? Is God kind of having fun with Jonah? Is he messing with him? Is he persecuting him? And what you need to see is that's not the case at all. What God is doing with Jonah is God is relentlessly chasing Jonah down. God is relentlessly going after him because here's what God knows about Jonah. And here's what God knows about you. God knows that the worst thing that we can do is to run from him. And if God allows us to run unbidden away from him, we are going to run to our destruction. It is going to be for our ultimate doom. And so God will chase us down and he will bring circumstances and events and consequences and whatever he needs to bring into our lives to wake us up and help us to realize that we are headed towards disaster. Notice what Proverbs 3 says. 3 and 11 and 12 says, My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. In other words, God doesn't run us down to hurt us or to do us damage or because he's out to get us and bring the hammer down on us. God comes after us because he loves us. He delights in us. And if I can say to the congregation here, I'm almost done Okay, let me just say this to you. There's a lot of you in here who are running right now. You are, you're running. And you're running and you're miserable. But you're determined to do it your own way. And all I have to say is as long as you're determined to do it your own way, you're going to be miserable because God's not going to let you be happy and satisfied because he realizes that when you run from him, you are running to your destruction. You're running to your harm and he loves you too much to allow you to do that. And can I encourage you not to be like Jonah, to be so hard-headed that you eventually just get so angry that you would rather die than do it God's way? Just do it his way. How do you think, by the way, the Ninevites felt once uh, they repented and those 40 days were up and God didn't destroy the city? Do you think that they had joy? Do you think that they thought, well, we made a good decision here? I think so. And we just want to say to you today, quit running and do things God's way. Turn to his mercy, let his mercy save you, and let him give you the joy that you will find in following him. All right, I want to finish here with um, a few thoughts for Bethel Church as I depart, okay? And I hope that this will all make sense about where this is coming from, and this will all tie together, and you'll see the two points about self-righteousness, self-centeredness, and then God's mercy. And I want to do this by looking at one more verse One more time. It's chapter 4, verse 11. Notice what uh, God says to Jonah. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. I want to take a little bit of uh, liberty with this verse, okay, and reinterpret it for Bethel Church in Northwest And I want to reinterpret it uh, or bring it about in a different way for the congregation here. Let's assume that God maybe is not speaking to Jonah, but he's speaking to Bethel Church, and he's not talking about Nineveh, but he's talking about Northwest Indiana. What does this mean? Maybe it would read like this. Should I not pity Northwest Indiana, that great community in which there are more than 700,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left, and also many cornfields? Now, I... Yeah. I, you had to put something in there. It's not yeah, you know, cattle doesn't work. It could be, you know, steel mills, potholes, um, restaurants, or uh, something like that. So don't get distracted by that. Look at the, the the first part. Should I not pity Northwest Indiana, that great community in which there are more than 700,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? I love Bethel Church. I love Northwest Indiana. I have spent the majority of my life um, here in this place. And... Uh, I spent a lot of time at Bethel Church, and here, here are two realities that I know and I am sure about. Number one, Northwest Indiana is a very spiritually needy community. There's a great need for the gospel to permeate every corner of this region. Northwest Indiana is a Nineveh. might not be as bad as Nineveh, but uh, it has its needs and its issues. We all know that. We all live here. If you don't know that, you need to wake up. You need to get our salt and light guidebook. You need to take a look about what's going on around here. It's a mess. Here's the other reality, however, and that is Bethel Church has a great opportunity to be a leader, if not the leader, in meeting that need. I believe that God has put Bethel Church here in this place for such a time as this. And I hopefully can say this without sounding self-righteous because I'm not here. I'm speaking as an outsider now to you. Is that there is no church, not one single one in this region, in this area, that is resourced and equipped and as talented as Bethel Church is. And God has done that for a purpose. He has done that for a reason. You do not sit in this room today for no reason. God has Bethel Church at this point and this time and place... For a reason. And I believe that reason is. Is to be the leader. In reaching Northwest Indiana for Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you. What it's going to require. And what it's going to take for that to happen. I've got three things. I'll tell you real quickly. First of all. It's going to require exporting. Exporting grace. Outside the walls of this facility exporting grace outside the walls of this facility. Here's what we know, okay? That Bethel Church is a wonderful church if you want to come and you want to receive grace. One of the things that I really, really love about Bethel is that people from every background, socioeconomic, ethnic, religious, or any type of background can come into the walls of this church and they can be loved on and they can be cared for and they can be accepted and they can be ministered to. But if we're going to reach Northwest Indiana with the gospel, it's going to require taking that grace outside of the walls of 10202 Broadway and carrying it into every sector of this community. It's going to require you taking it to work with you, to school with you, to your neighborhood with you, to the grocery store with you. Take what we so richly have here and get it outside of the walls of this church. Here, here's what we know, okay? Northwest Indiana is tired of self-righteous Christianity. They're tired of it. They've had enough of Christians standing on their high horse, on their pedestal and looking down and telling them how evil and wicked they are without really showing love and grace. They don't want any of that. But what our community does want and what they do need is they need Christians who not only proclaim the gospel with their lips but they actually live out their faith and show the grace of Jesus Christ in their everyday life. You have that here. Take it out with you. Second thing It's going to require Bethelonians to get outside of their comfort zones and to invest their time, treasure, and talents in this community and in taking the gospel to the community. It's going to require for you to get uncomfortable and to take that blank and put that blank beside and to make your main mission to be the same mission of Jesus Christ and that is to rescue lost and dying people. You know, we say here, by the way, right, it's all about Him. Well, if it is really all about him, then it's all about, it's being about all that he is about. And we know that Jesus is all about rescuing lost people. Is that right? So let's be about that and get out of our comfort zone in order to do that. Here's the last thing. And I just have to say, if you remember nothing else that I've ever said, I want you to remember this. And that is, is that you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. If you do that, two things are going to happen. At the very least, two things. First of all, God will keep you humble. Okay? 1 Peter 5, 5 says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the way to stay humble is to keep the gospel always before you. Because here's what the gospel tells you. The gospel tells you that that, but, but for the grace of God, there go I. That I am no better than anyone else except for the fact that Jesus Christ has shown exceptional mercy and grace to me. And that I didn't do anything to get it. And if I'm reminded that I'm a sinner saved by grace on a daily basis, it will humble me before everyone else. The Same thing at the same time, it will also empower you. the gospel will empower you because here 's what the gospel tells you is that though you were a sinner, though your sins were as scarlet, they are now white as snow, that Jesus Christ is taking your sins and cast them into the deepest sea, as far as the east is from the west, He remembers them no more, so that today believers, you stand before Jesus Christ, holy, righteous, and accepted in his sight, that sec- sec- uh, your eternity is secure, and that there is nothing that can separate you from God. And when you, when you go over that, over and over and over again, you know what it does? It wells up within you a heart of love and passion for Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. And that love and that passion will compel you. It will press upon you to go out and to share the grace of God with others. And so the key to doing one and two, exporting grace and getting out of your comfort zone is to preach the gospel because ultimately here's what the gospel tells you, that Jesus Christ got out of his comfort zone and he exported grace from heaven to earth so that you might receive it. And once you get that, then you're going to be ready to export it to other people as well. That's it. Last words, let's pray. Father, we come to you today and I thank you for this church. It's been such a gift and a blessing to me. You've used this church to change my life. And um, I know many others, and I I just pray, Lord, that in the days ahead that you will use this church to change um, Northwest Indiana. I pray that it won't be something that we just give lip service to, but it'll be something that we actually begin to see happen. We realize, Lord, that you're going to do what you want to do here in Northwest Indiana uh, without Bethel Church, but that you are giving this church the opportunity to have a huge role in what you want to do and what you are going to accomplish I thank you for the time that you've uh, enabled me to be a part of that, and I so look forward to what you have for Bethel in the days ahead. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice that has made it all possible. And Lord, I thank you that this really isn't a goodbye, that um, ultimately we're going to spend all eternity together worshiping you when the mission is complete. And hopefully we will all hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. For your sake. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.